Gene Sarson and Linda McDonald have spent decades developing ways of offering care and protection to women who desperately need it. As the description for their new book, Women Unsilenced, Our Refusal to Let Torture Traffickers Win, points out, they've made it their goal to break the silence, the tyranny of silence by which gender-based violence persists. They explain in this conversation that they developed a network of care for women in these circumstances because they couldn't just passively take in the information. They needed to intervene. And while I don't agree with every single one of the claims that they make in Women on Silence, I absolutely respect their fundamental motivation. There is an attachment in their book, and, and you'll hear it in this conversation, there is an attachment to the criminal justice system, a sense that we can't necessarily quickly move away from uh, the system that we have. Um, I, I feel somewhat differently and agree with my next guest for the podcast, Ardath Why Not, that this violence in some ways comes from living in a carceral society that, quote, relies on binary categories of good and evil to avoid any sustained response to the causes of domestic violence. But I absolutely agree with their sense that care networks are vital for providing an alternative space of safety outside of that punishing individualistic society, outside of the coordinates of possibility provided by patriarchy, white supremacy, misogyny, domination. We cover a wide range of, of topics here. It's, it's, not, it's not an easy conversation. We talk about the ways in which victimization dehumanizes people. We talk about what it means to, as Jean puts it, rescue the act of caring in a society that doesn't just dismiss but even criminalizes caring in certain ways. They talk about the ways in which their own place in the story is crucial to how they theorize gender-based violence, how they understand the persistence of torturing and trafficking and objectification. And I ask them how they cope through the work that they do, and they, they make it clear that for them it's not a question of coping, it's a question of responsibility. Uh, you can find Women Unsilenced in bookstores in, in Halifax and online at Friesen Press. The chapters of the book are replete with details that are gathered from meetings at kitchen tables, face-to-face -face encounters that are about trying to connect with those that have been made to feel deeply disconnected from humanity. It's a wide-ranging and, as I say, fairly difficult conversation, so please do be aware that we, we are going to be talking about gender-based violence. We're going to be talking about subjects that not everyone is going to be comfortable discussing, but we discuss that too. What it means to be, to be in a society where these subjects are rarely talked about because they are taboo or because they are too overwhelming. You know, I had, um, you know, a, a really, you know, in, you know, intense, invigorating time reading your, your book, of course, um, and, and reading it in the context of larger feminist discourses on femicidal violence, on intimate partner violence, on the, the escalation of these forms of violence. 
Um, and, and in terms of that, like I recently read an article in the Taiyi uh, entitled A Key Role for Media in the Fight Against Femicide. And I wanted to kind of start with this question of representation since you know, you're sort of intervening with this book in a, in a, a discourse that is about representation. So they say in that article, um, quote, in covering femicide, media have a leading role, not only in awareness and education generally, but in actively shaping the construction of attitudes and beliefs that can help prevention efforts. So the article, you know, is suggesting that it's actively harmful to represent this form of violence as something that's like isolated or individualized. Um, and I mean, like this is in the context of, you know, a pop culture that both of you have noted celebrates in some ways the, the, the torture of women, or at least normalizes the torture of women, you know, movies like the suicide squad or black widow or the hateful eight come to mind, but they're just some in a series of these sorts of representations that I think normalize violence. I want to ask like, what's your sense of the role that media representation plays in determining the social reality of gender-based violence? Well, media is part of freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. It's part of democracy. So media is crucial to the role of um, exposing the crime of torture of women and girls and to stop sexualizing and romanticizing, uh, you know, the reality of torture, like Fifty Shades of Grey is a good example. I mean, that mm-hmm. whole book and then turned into a movie. And now we're seeing the young woman everywhere she goes that was in the movie, you know, followed and probably the the torture fantasies that people think of when they see her. It really bothers me because um, media ha- can do just the opposite. And, and really right now, media is not doing the opposite. We're having a hard time to get media to listen to us, to talk about our book. But it is, mm-hmm. it's the foundation of... Um, culture, media, and democracy. So I I think it's really crucial. And to that, Scott, I would add the saying that we we hear many times that it takes a whole village or a community to raise a child. Mm -hmm. So the media is part of that community. And if the media silences the truth, then um, we have to hold ourselves to account, the media included. And that's why uh, we wrote the book, because it does take a community to raise a child, and we would not agree to the silence. And that's why we keep working, trying to make connections with media, so the media will join us as a community making the world safer. Yeah, and it, it sounds like a serious challenge, sort of, in a way, educating the media, because there's this... I think really entrenched resistance to difficult subjects, to subjects that you imagine are going to sort of um, turn off your audience or, or often the claim is re-traumatize your audience. And this is something that when you, you, you both spoke on the podcast last time you addressed, you know, really well. And, you know, I was just thinking about this a bit more in relationship to the, the book, you know, um, and actually this interview that I saw with the director of the film Procession. So Procession is this um, documentary that's about the scandal of, of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Uh, the director of that film, Robert Green, recently discussed the fear of re-traumatization 
in covering these stories of child sexual abuse. He was speaking with The Hollywood Reporter and Green said that in making his documentary, he was trying to give those that have experienced trauma the ability to control the narrative, to communicate their truth. And for this reason specifically, he says the experience was not re-traumatizing. What he says is that trauma is really the, the result of taking power away. So you can't re-traumatize when you give power because that is what trauma is. It's the denial of power. And so he says like, just giving people power to make their own representational choices um, was was empowering. And to that end, like w- Women Unsilenced contains a vast array of drawings and art. And I want to ask why you felt it was important to empower women to use, in a way, graphic medicine or art-based ther- therapy to work through trauma. Well, uh, again, Scott, I think I would use a stronger word than trauma because in our book we call it uh, victimization. Victimization means there's uh, a violation that has occurred, that a crime has occurred. Mm -hmm. And I think um, if we stop the freedom of speech in a way that women who joined us in the book were saying, this makes me feel so important. This makes me feel that I'm a person with a voice. This makes me feel that I'm being heard, that I'm being seen, that I'm being listened to. Those are all um, not uh, trauma-related issues. Those are their own issues of uh, claiming their dignity claiming their right to be seen as persons on this planet. So for us, the book is very positive and it is very positive for the women in this regard. And the reason their art is in there is because sometimes um, their ability to find the right words and the right emotion to express the victimization that they survived, that the best way they find to do it is through visual expression. And that's why we have so many of their um, drawings or their art forms in the book, because Hmm. it speaks louder about their reality. And the women, you know, they they can put the book down. They don't have to keep reading or they can skip over stories if they don't want to read stories. So people have the power to uh, read the book the way they like. They don't have to start at the beginning. They could start in the middle. They could only read the theory part. You know, there's many ways that the book can be read because it's a, it's a composite of our stories, the women's stories and the theory and all the different scientific models that we develop. So it's really a collection of different ways of knowing in one. I wanted to go back to the media just for a minute and say that another reason why um, we're thinking that the media is a blocker because it, it is, um, except for very dedicated, some dedicated journalists, is also there's informal networks. And uh, the informal networks are um, comprised of perpetrators and they have access to the media and all the other structures in, in society. And they influence the uh, decisions of all the uh, gatekeepers of democracy just like um, you know, we know about Weinstein and, and uh, Epstein, they're, the, they're considered informal uh, networks while we were connected to knowing some of the organized crime and the informal networks. So 
we can't ever rule out the impact that those networks have on freedom of speech. That's another form of corruption that people probably aren't considering. Yeah, for sure. I, I think you're right. That, And so like the responsibility becomes like, how do you make visible those informal networks of perpetrators? Um, and I think like the argument often is that, you know, um, the the kind of new network feminist movement represented by something like Me Too is an attempt to create uh, a kind of care network, a, a, a source of collective power that can, um, you know, uh, destabilize those like patriarchal forms of kind of network power that allow abusers to keep abusing. That's right. You have to have a network to undo a network. Yeah. Um, and, and on that point, like there's this really, you know, vociferous argument in the book for care as a means of restoring people's sense of self-worth, you know, fighting worth, worthlessness basically through care. Um, you, there's a line in the book that I wanted to read where you write, uh, the torturer's actions can leave victims struggling with the emotional feelings of worthlessness, so, so worthless that suicide feels like their only way out. Um, this made me think uh, of the, um, the ways in which Amanda Todd and Retea Parsons in particular, I think, have haunted political discussions of the vulnerability of young women in Canada since their suicides in British Columbia and Nova Scotia. Uh, respectively, you know, they they really became representative of the this crisis of cyberbullying and its violent effects. Um, you know, and and both girls um, ended their lives because they couldn't escape the universal condemnation of their peers at the time. Um, you know, and 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 what's interesting though, in terms of the legacy, uh, the ways in which those people, those people, those deaths, those those suicides have haunted the discourse is that. You know, there was this outrage, right? Parsons suicide, particularly in Halifax, here in Halifax, um, generated an enormous amount of rage, I think, and for good reason, you know. Um, the case was originally, in fact, dismissed by the police. And I want to come back to that question of the police uh, a little bit later in our in our uh, discussion. But that case was reopened specifically as a result of public pressure. Um, and so, it's clear, like from reading your book, that given that you're calling for spaces of protection uh, for for women, for victims, for people to not feel simply condemned for having been victimized, like to what extent do you feel like the power of care networks is partly about, as you put it, Gene, in the book, rescuing care, like rescuing it from what perhaps is the is the question, like where has care gone from your point of view? Well, if we're talking with with and about the women that are in the book with us. Um, I guess if we wanted to think about rescuing as a social responsibility, I would define the rescuing then that people read the book, that people, Linda and I have said to people, if you want to have further discussion when you're reading the book as a group, that we'd... Um, sit down and Skype or Zoom with individuals to talk that through. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the issues about rescuing is that we have never apologized for writing the book and telling the truth. I, I think when you talk about rescuing, we have to value truth telling. For some reason, as a species, we have a tendency to want to silence the truth you know if we're 
Linda and I, in some ways, and the women in the book are whistleblowing. And people say, well, I, I, I can't read the book or I don't want to read the book. But we have to change that, that response to know that knowing the truth is about rescuing, if you will, socially, the silence that makes this type of organized crime, this type of family victimization, okay. Because um, it becomes okay with silence. And to do the opposite, which is in the book that we, Linda and I said, we learned to do the opposite of what the torturers do, is to speak up. And that was, um, I guess that's the social rescuing that's in the book, is that mm -hmm. we have never been silent. And I don't consider what happened to Retea and uh, I forget, uh, Amanda's Todd as, as a dying by suicide. I see it as a form of femicide. They were really left no choice. The, the structures were so cruel to them, um, blaming them for all of the violations that they endured and not, not holding uh, the perpetrators or the peers around the perpetrators or society accountable. And I mean, they were just driven to die by suicide under a femicidal uh, con you know, condition. It was just, it's heart-wrenching to think of it. And if we had had a caring society around them, I don't believe they would have ever have chosen uh, mm -hmm. suicide ever. I don't think they did choose it. I think they were driven to it. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and a caring perhaps rather than just like punitive or carceral society. And Jean, you were saying that there's this like desire to silence the truth, to to like marginalize, especially like difficult knowledge. Um, and, and this is something you, you take up in the book, I think, in terms of the ways in which trauma is pathologized. So you say globally, all forms of violence against women and girls continue to be dismissed as unfounded, as deserved, as asked for, or for women so tortured, they risk being treated as mentally ill. And so you say you refuse to accept being told or labeled with a mental illness. Um, and you say, like, this is the reason for revising the victim blaming term PTSD to the more accurate term post-traumatic stress response to identify uh, responses to victimization. And this made me think of, um, there's a piece, an essay called Traumatic Monologues by Melanie Yazzie, where she writes that too often these kinds of social justice projects aren't seen as structural problems. They're mired in these like neoliberal ideas about healing as something that one does primarily as an individual. Like what, what's your sense as, as people that are, you know, trained as, as nurses, but who have now engaged in this kind of discourse around uh, trauma, victimization and healing of, of like the limits of PTSD as a discourse and how it might be rooted in this like very individualized and very isolated way of dealing with trauma? It, well, first of all, I think it's very wrong. It's very patriarchal because that's what happens to women and girls. We're blamed for the patriarchy. We're blamed for being blamed for everything. And um, perpetrators get off scot-free. I mean, I grew up in violence. I fought my way through violence and I know I was not mentally ill. I have no doubt in my mind that I would get depressive and get down and discouraged and hurt and anguished and desolate and all those feelings but none of them are a mental illness. I mean, what do you expect uh, little girls or, or adults who are trapped in torture families to feel? 
I mean, why, why that uh, we think that we have the right to pathologize those normal, healthy feelings and responses is just outrageous. So it's all about the patriarchy. And that's what we tried to do in the book is to show patriarchy and how wrong and how grave an injustice it is for women and girls. And to, to show another way for women and girls who want to think differently. Now, if people want to claim a, a mental illness, that's their right. I'm not saying that this is just my opinion and it's Jean's opinion. We're not saying it's the only way, but we're saying it's the way it was the way for us. And more and more people are saying it too. There's more and more challenging around the structures and the pathologizing that's going on and to call it a disorder when really it's just a normal response. So that wave is growing. And I find that really inspiring to know that, especially for young people, hopefully they won't grow up with the same kind of, uh, I mean, I did end up self-blaming myself in ways that I shouldn't have if I'd been brought up in a non-patriarchal society and not seen, um, you know, my feelings, my responses to the to the violence as my fault, I would have been a much different person and wouldn't have had so much work to do. So I'm really hoping that young people, young women, and when they re teenagers, if they read our book, they, they you know, throw off all the self-blame and self-doubt and, and worry about their mind and know that it's really, it's the people around them that are wrong. It's the structures around them that are wrong. It's the uncaring reality of the world that is wrong, and they know that it's not their fault. As you were asking the question, um, I kind of jumped into the book around the whole issue that we wrote in the book that, you know, is caring. We can do it person to person, if you will. And for us, for Linda and I, and in the book and the women that we were supporting, we were caring in many different ways, you know, like we described advocating and problem solving and educating around the inequality of women and girls and uh, gave them information to start undoing the lies and the distortion that they were so victimized by. But what what came to me as you were asking that question is writing in the book that as hard as we worked and as hard as the women worked to just kind of say, okay, go out into society that doesn't give a damn, you know, because they're not listening. And um, that, that presents a whole layer of, um, hard, hard, hard and painful work. And it shouldn't be that we're in, that society should be excused from caring. And it took me to the social again around that we live in a country called Canada. And as much as Linda and I have tried to have the political um, structure of Canada understand what torture victimization means to be always confronted with a rejection or a different argument that said, well, uh, if you're tortured by state actors, which would be like a police or um, military, that that's more important what can be more important than the girls you just mentioned that ended up uh, 
being so uncared about that they committed suicide. So we have to bring the whole issue of caring, not only person to person, but in society in general. Right. And, you know, you're, you're providing um, sort of a, like a macro political perspective to some extent in the book um, in, in part by just using that term non-state actors, um, which is a term that has strong connections to like national security and a kind of militaristic view of geopolitics, you know, like a rogue state, like the Taliban would be considered a non-state actor. Um, but you're using it to talk about like um, uh, domestic violence which is, you know, an example of, I think, the book's attempt to sort of invent a language of care to some extent and, and talk about the politics of, you know, as you say, warring men being protected from torture by law, but not women who are in these vulnerable um, positions. Um, but, you know, I wanted to um, come back to uh, uh, one thing uh, I think Linda said about you know, moving past mental illness as a framework toward a more inclusive framework that identifies the toxic nature of the structure itself, um, you know, a world that that doesn't care uh, or that excuses us from caring, uh, as you said, Jean. Like part of that structure is what Bell Hooks, the late Bell Hooks, called imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, right? So, um, you know, there's a line in Women on Silence where you say healthy, caring is about living in a society that nurtures social inclusion, non-discrimination, non-violence, and respect for human dignity. And that made me think of um, the other book that just recently uh, came out by Ardath Wynock from Fernwood Press, Insurgent Love, which is also in some ways about exposing misogynistic violence, intimate partner violence. Um, and in that book, she argues that while you know exposing misogyny and the misogynistic roots of femicidal violence is incredibly important work, it sometimes ignores the roots of misogyny in settler colonialism and racial capitalism. She says, stopping the analysis at misogyny risks, quote, concealing the complicity of white feminists in structures that uphold the very violence they're seeking to disrupt. It says that we actually need to account for the ways in which our white ancestors brought structures of objectification and possessiveness seen both, she says, through the ways in which the land itself has been objectified and stolen and possessed. Um, and she says we have to make sure that we don't lose that from the conversation when we're talking about how to tackle gender-based violence, given that possessiveness and objectification are part of what really drives the, the severity and of the violence, right? And I guess I wanted to ask, like, where's your thinking at in terms of how your book intervenes on the questions of, like, race and intersectionality, um, right. This particular quote where you're talking about how healthy caring really relies on non-discrimination and social conclude social inclusion. Could you explain, expand on what you're saying in that, that passage in maybe in relationship to what Wynock is arguing? Well, we were just talking, um, this week with a woman from South uh, India who mm -hmm. advocates for, uh, women and young women who were child brides in, in right. India. So, um, Non-state torture is a global reality that happens to all women and girls all over the world, regardless of their race, regardless of their culture, regardless of their tradition, regardless of the economics of the country. It's all based on patriarchy. So patriarchy in itself is a global tradition and it's rooted in misogyny. 
and um, the grave, most grave human right violation globally in the world is violence against women and girls. It really is. And it, if you mentioned about uh, security and national security. Mm-hmm. It's an indicator of national security. We're not going to ever be safe as a country if we're going to be violent to women and girls. So we're very um, open to thinking about our work applying to all women and girls, and we're respectful of the differences in each culture and each tradition and each country. But really, there is never an excuse. Tradition or um, race or culture is never an excuse for torture, ever. It's an irreducible um, crime and human rights violations, and we, we stand strong against it. Yeah, that notion of an irreducible crime, like something that is just irrefutably, you use the language of evil uh, in the book. And I mean, like even the fact of the RCMP's history, right? The RCMP is a colonial power that used strategic violence to pacify the country and steal land. I mean, that's just the the fact of this history. The question of whether it persists in the present um, is a different maybe question. I think that's when um, the discourse gets very polarizing, right? And like, you know, Judith Butler and other feminists acknowledge that there is, of course, like aggression in the human genome. Uh, but the way that aggression is expressed and the struct, like the social structures um, that either, um, you know, deal with violence in a, in a socially just way or simply punish it, like that has a big par- part to play, apparently, according to some of these theorists, in determining um, who is impacted by violence. Like, one of the things that, uh, you know, Wynock says, for example, in, in relationship to the National Day of Remembrance and Action that just took place on, you know, uh, that is to say the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women that just took place in, in, uh, here in Canada on December 6th, the commemoration of the Polytechnic Massacre. Wynock says, on December 6th, we can honor victims by abolishing the carceral system that failed to prevent the killer's violence, right? So like, that is not about just sort of, you know, criminalizing a uh, deranged misogynist, though, of course, like that is appropriate in some ways. It's about trying to couch that argument against misogyny in discriminatory, patriarchal and misogynistic polities and practices that are that actually reinforce torturers uh, message that social political structures don't care, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. And like this is. This is the thing I guess I wanted to ask you about in terms of how the book uh, brings together this political argument and your own personal accounts, right? Because, Gina, at one point you say that, you know, when the police left uh, uh, your house and your father, like, continued his rage, you used to wonder why the police did nothing, right? And you say this social neglect hurt sometimes as much as the family violence. Mm. Um, So, I mean... How can we move past? Is it possible to move past this model that just relies on the police to punish, that relies on criminalization and, and punishment, this sort of carceral feminism? Um, is, there, is there a more com- kind of community safety oriented model that can replace that sort of carceral feminism with something more uh, progressive? Well, I certainly don't believe in um, uh, criminalizing uh, vulnerable people. Or, and I certainly do believe that um, colonialism has um, criminalized persons of color, black mm. people and persons of color. I won't deny that. I mean, it's atrocious what's going on. And colonialism has affected the whole world, not just North America. I mean, you look at India and you look at Africa, 
and the colonialism and what it's done there. So colonialism is horrible. And I wouldn't even call the residential schools residential schools. I call them centers of cruelty. Mm -hmm. So I'm not denying the, the power of uh, and the wrong, uh, how wrong colonialism is. And I certainly also don't agree with a lot of the police tactics now. And of course, uh, Jane Gerster in the book that she's writing is talking about the paramilitary and that's the history that the RCMP came from. So we really do have to change that. And we, we have to change it by other ways other than education, because obviously that's not working. They have to have serious consequences, whether it's suspension with no pay, being fired, no um, promotions, all kinds of much more serious sanctions to hold these misogynistic, uh, militaristic police accountable. So that's, that's definitely, but I, for the people that we know, the women that we know, their perpetrators, their parents, their people of privilege in society, they have no place walking the streets. So I would never agree that prisons shouldn't be um, uh, be part of uh, a caring society. It, it probably is that we have the wrong people in prison most times because none of them have gone to, to jail. None of them have even gone to court because the women are too uh, traumatized by how uncaring society is to ever dare take them to court. But they they are such evil people their actions are so evil. I don't believe they're redeemable in any way with education or caring. And I think we have to accept that, that there is a component of society of human beings that are gone way beyond any redeemable uh, rehabilitation. And I would like to see some of them in prison. But what I'd really like to see is that we start getting to prevention, which is to educate children when they're very young, even as toddlers and in preschool, about caring and move away from the patriarchy and the colonialism and the you know the uncaring uh, societies in that way. But we have to do it all all together. It can't be just one uh, one intervention because it's going to take a long time for the education to take hold. So that's why we're pushing for the legal changes because maybe some of the women will feel strong enough to take their perpetrators to court, and we'll start seeing some of them in in jail where they should be. Yeah, I mean, there has been certainly a, a surge in the reporting of sexual assault since Me Too, and that has everything to do, reports have shown, um, with a greater sense that you will be supported if you come forward, which is like inherently powerful. And and what I hear you saying, Linda, is that you, you really want to try and grasp at the roots of these problems. And that like that's, you know, um, to me, what I hear some of these theorists advocating for, you know, like. Um, for example, in the Manifesto Feminism for the 99%, they talk about this mistaken assumption that the laws, police, and courts can maintain sufficient autonomy from power structures to actually fight uh, gender violence, right? So like, um, if, the, if the only institu institutions we have um, for holding, uh, to use your term, you know, torture traffickers accountable are themselves complicit with violence, in fact, like productive of violence, you know, it, it becomes necessary to sort of maybe abolish the system and create something totally new, a, a caring society. Um, but sorry, Jean, I didn't give you a chance to jump in there. Well, Scott, you started with um, asking me about how I felt when the police came to our mm -hmm. house. And of course, I was just a kid. So the whole issue of inequality and uh, structural inequality was not something I understood there. 
at that time because, you know, I was so little. Um, I came to understand it more and more, you know, and it, sometimes it takes us quite a while to fully understand the society in which we are. I don't believe in abolishing what we have because I don't know if we're skilled enough yet to create uh, an absolutely uh, perfect social structure of any any form. Um, I, I think that's an evolutionary process for me. Um, mm -hmm. It was not only colonialism as we know it. There were many forms in many different countries of how patriarchal power evolved. And so I think we have to have uh, many ways of knowing to challenge truthfully the root of misogyny and the root of how patriarchy became uh, a normal way of functioning. Um, you know, Martha Nussbaum, for example, has talked about how the um, subjugation of women in some ways has been based on their relative size in relationship to men so like mm -hmm. presumably there there's like a biological yeah. element um that needs to be accounted for um sylvia winter the critical race theorist sylvia winter talks about how we are both of course a biological species but also a fundamentally storytelling species mm -hmm. yeah you you kind of can't have one perhaps without the other and and maybe on that point i wanted to talk about uh, or tease out some of the book's uh, engagement with how you position yourself in this story you know like there like there's clearly room left in the book for for thinking through like your place in the stories of those that you have rescued through care and some of the strategies of survival that you've developed um so like for our, for example on page 74 you recount this harrowing story of falling asleep while driving because you just exhausted yourself um you know being present to someone um, you know, and, and you talk at the very end of the book about how you cope. Um, and there's this, you know, lovely passage where you talk about how it's a question you're asked all the time. Um, and that, you know, for you, a lifelong way of coping has always been just talking and that's never been more vital. Um, you know, that's something that I find to be such like a simple and powerful insight, this idea that just speaking together, especially face to face, I know that's difficult in the pandemic, but like that is the means through which tr transformation happens is is through this kind of sharing this truth telling um i wondered if you could just like reflect on that specific story about how and why you position yourself in the book as as like part of the story and what you learned about the power of talk by writing the book well we positioned ourselves in the book because we're part of the story mm -hmm. and it was important we felt when we worked with the women and still do, we're not, we don't see ourselves as separate from them, that, that we're, um, that they're objectified in some way, I guess, you know, we're the counselor mm -hmm. and they're the, whatever people think of them as the client or something, you know, we, we just see ourselves as women talking together and that we have some wisdom to share and that they have wisdom to share and how we work that through together. And we felt it was important for people um, to understand our story too, to understand why we work the way we do, because without our story, probably they wouldn't have understood it the same. I don't know, did it help you 
to, to read our story to see how our work on evolved? No, I thought those were some of the most like uh, compelling moments in some ways of the book, like uh, in the epilogue where you say, uh, where you kind of like, uh, you're, you're talking about how people assume that you needed to distance yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And you say, you were just talking about this, like you never, you refused mm-hmm. to use the title term of the book. You refused to distance or disconnect mm-hmm. yourself from the reality, which is, you know, a difficult and exhausting thing, an overwhelming thing to do. You say, I, you know, when you imagine your role, you picture yourself standing right in the midst of the horrors with the women who have survived. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that has to be part of the reason why you, you just, you know, fell asleep at the wheel because it's just unbelievably draining. That's why I mean, we can only speculate, but that has to be part of the reason why we exist in a society that does allow and even encourage the silencing, right? It is, it is undeniably overwhelming, but necessary, right? Well, see, the thing is, I didn't, I don't find it overwhelming to be part, because that's the only way I know. I, I learned that when I was little, and I can't do, I couldn't do the work any other way anyway, Scott. I couldn't. I mean, it's exhausting, but it's not overwhelming. It would be overwhelming for me to want to try to distance myself. I could not do it. I'm not capable of that. Because that's not the way I take in the world. I think when I was little, you know, I was so bereft, you know, that story about the daisy and mm-hmm. so bereft. Um, I, that's the way I, I functioned myself. I took in the world. I became part of the world. And that's the way I've lived my life. And I realized that in that sense, it's made me an outsider in many ways that I wasn't really aware of. Mm-hmm. But I think um, people, women tell us, and you're telling us that it was important for them too, because they can identify with the story because they feel like they went with us in the story. And some women say it helped them in their own life and, and their understanding of why they were doing what they were doing or understanding about evil. So then the reader grows as they're reading. It's not, it's not an objective act. You're not just reading a story. You're, you're part of the story. And that was the brilliance of the way Jean wrote the book, to bring them along in the story. And to me, that's that's just part of our participatory research, you know, at the kitchen table or in the book. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's, just, it's just our natural way of being, wouldn't you say, Jean? Yes, I, I think uh, it's um, sometimes, and maybe often, easier to be violent than it is to care but if we could undo the easier to be violent with it becomes easier to care it wouldn't be so hard Hmm. you know i mean very quick you know i I think of um, drivers who get you know road rage you know and they're cursing and swearing and sticking up their their finger at you you know that's like being ready to fight instead of stopping and think now. I think that's a great example. Yeah. Is that respectful? There was just an instance of road rage in the Maritimes. It made uh, the rounds on CBC. Did you read about this? There was, it was about like how uh, the, the social norm of the zipper merge is not well understood. I know. I just couldn't believe that. And like this guy tried to use the zipper merge, but it was interpreted as an aggressive act Mm -hmm. as he was trying to like butt in line. And a guy in a white cube truck just marched in traffic to this guy's car and punched 
the back window out of his car. Right. And it's like, it's hard to account in a way for like those acts of aggression, either a without gesturing to some like biological impulse to be violent. Right. So he had, he was triggered by this perceived slight Mm -hmm. and, and was, was like seething presumably in the car and rather than finding a way to like reconcile his anger with just the his situation, mm-hmm. he decided to externalize that, to weaponize mm-hmm. it, right. um, and terrorize this guy, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like it's a it's a I, I've been obsessing a little bit about this seemingly trivial news story because I think you're right. It does indicate that we live in a society where it is in some ways easier to be violent when you're stuck in gridlock when the actual like built environment seems hostile and toxic, it's not easy to care. It's not easy to like swallow rage, which might be a natural, naturally occurring chemical thing. You know, like the structure of society itself seems to make us violent. And there are many examples like whistleblowing. We have whistleblowers who try to make the world better and who gets attacked, but the whistleblower, you know, it's that social construction, of how it seems that it's so easier to hunt and be angry than it is to care. So um, that's why I think if we could read the book and people could look at it, okay, this is a caring act. This is not to be considered uh, an atrocity that I want to distance, but this should be a caring act that I welcome to understand and help myself uh, emotionally grow into uh, a different way of understanding the violence that our society perpetrates. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's, we have to learn, we have to have learn and evolve how to care. And it would be simpler, I think. It wouldn't be so hard as Linda and I uh, wrote in the book. That's what feminism is, really. True feminism, I think it's an act of caring. Because, you know, to understand that as a woman, as a girl, that I'm thought of as less than, that I'm objectified, that my, my value is not as not equal. <clears throat> and to live with that reality and yet to work to try to change that for not just me, but for my children and, and men and boys, that's a very patient act. And I think I learned that um, as a child because I knew that I didn't want to be violent like my, my father. I knew that was the wrong way to go. So I pushed my brain to a different way. And we have to go beyond the biology that, you know, we're, that women are physically smaller or we have less testosterone or we're, we don't have the same bone structure and all of those biological things that historically when we were in caves, you know, when we were out fighting for our lives, we had to be quite brutal, I think, as a species to survive. But we're not there anymore. We have to go beyond the biology. We have to go to our brains and to relational awareness and to caring. And we're capable of that. And it's, it's a learned behavior. I don't think we're doomed as a species, but, you know, you have the climate crisis and we have COVID we have all kinds of things that are pushing us in ways that we've never had to go before. And I'm hoping that enough of us will come out of this much more caring. That's my belief. Yeah, that's my hope too. And I, you know, many people are trying to kind of, um, many people who believe in care uh, are trying to like leverage this moment to point out that the neoliberal state really wasn't equipped to care. 
right? And and I mean, just look at the crisis in long-term care facilities as one example, right? Like um, it is an uncaring society in part because, and, and to your point, Gene, like I think it's easier to hunt now. Like it feels like it's mm-hmm. like that's the more natural impulse because of the the social Darwinist conditions of capitalism. I mean, of a competitive capitalist, individualistic kind of society. I mean, the pedagogy that we're that we receive early on in life, even in the family, is that you kind of have to make it on your own. I mean, part of the structure that limits care, I think, is the family itself. Um, and this is, you know, something that you're talking about in the book. You know, Linda, you narrate this moment of having an epiphany where you just you no longer are deferent to your parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that, is, you know, I wanted to pick up on that um, because we've reflected a lot on the, the importance of the family. To what extent you feel that the family itself is kind of implicated in the reproduction of these really unequal relationships of power, right? Like, um, you know, people like Kathy Weeks have written about the family in ways that are just like pretty much abolitionist, you know, like basically saying that it writes weeks at one point writes that uh, the heteropatriarchal family may function as a haven and a heartless world for some, but for others, it's a sad and dangerous sight. So like the police, in a way, the family is an institution that inspires a certain level of emotional attachment. Like people don't want to let go of it. And I've had many conversations with people who can't imagine what it would mean to defund or abolish the police. Gene, you were kind of talking about this, Linda, you know, like seeing a place for prison. Do you think that, you know, just like the carceral system, the neoliberal structure of the family that says we can't have families that like um, are networked families, we all have to kind of have our own domestic spaces of the home that are isolated. Like, to what extent do you think that itself needs to be interrogated, examined, and even maybe dismantled? Well, the family is the foundation of patriarchy. That's where where it's taught. So we, we really... We have to transform families, and that's what our book is about. It's exposing the worst that happens in families. You know, stop thinking about that stranger over in the with the white van. I mean, I know there are those, and they're 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 part of the problem. But the core of violence happens in families, mm-hmm. and um, um, really, we have to start becoming honest about our families, and that's why. I was proud to do that because my family was not a good family. And how are children and young people going to learn that it's okay to talk about your family if we don't start role modeling that? And we all go around pretending that we have perfect families. We're going to stay in patriarchy forever. Hmm. So we have to kind of demystify the the family. Absolutely. And 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 talk about the actual patterns that exist. Like I've mentioned Wynock's book, uh, Insurgent Love, a number of times. One of the things she points out is that like we've known the patterns, the social trends that lead to uh, intimate partner violence that lead to femicide for at least 25 years. We know exactly what the predictors are. The problem in part is that we're deploying police uh, when we should be deploying care workers, right? Who understand the the warning signs um, and perceive the patterns within a family structure. Is there anything else you guys wanted to um, add before we, um, we, we end today? Well, I can add there that I think it has to be everywhere. I don't think we should get rid of the police, but they have to start paying attention to the red flags and we have to have more care workers and we have to have more, we have to look at every structure in patriarchy and transform it to one based in equality. 
and mm. start uh, rooting out about misogyny. We have to really get serious about misogyny and what a, what a, right. a cruel force it is in the world and how it affects not just women and girls, but men and boys as well. I mean, even in, I mean, in the police force and in the military, I mean, the, the reckoning right now in the Canadian military, something like 19,000 complaints mm-hmm. are being apologized for currently. So, I mean, the level of misogyny even within these institutions is, is, it's shocking. Yeah, misogyny is rampant. So what I would add, Scott, is that we really have to take on a global deconditioning of our species of patriarchy. We have to just say we've all been born into patriarchy and every structure and every person has been conditioned into patriarchy. You can only change uh, patterns of behavior with awareness. So what does conditioning, patriarchal conditioning mean? What does, how does that play out within our own belief systems, our own actions, our own uh, thoughts and attitudes um, around others who are different than we are? All that is about finding ways to deconstruct the patriarchy that we've all been born into. That issue of having to think through what it is we're doing every day, how we're uh, progressing with care or how we're progressing with more oppression and more harm. Mm -hmm. So it's a very socially conscious effort that we have to engage in. And I appreciate you, I mean, putting in, putting yourselves into this book in the way that you you have um, and making the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you very Scott. much, Scott, for your interest and your caring.